Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Space Junk Podcast. I am your host, Annie Hanmar, and today we're talking about space governance and the future of the moon and developing countries and all sorts of other things actually the great conversation but before we get to that i'd like to let you know about two events coming up that i'm involved in and which you may like to attend on the 6th of august at 10 p.m sydney time or earlier that day if you're anywhere else in the world except new zealand i'll be speaking on a panel for the center for spacefaring civilizations mars disaster webinar the concept is that there's a technical malfunction in a future mars base and disaster ensues. What do we do about it? The panelists who will be discussing this include former guests of the podcast, Lauren Napier and Thomas Cheney, and the brilliant Tanya Harrison, or Tanya of Mars. Later this month on August 18th at 6 p.m. Sydney time, I'll be moderating a webinar panel on the idea of giving the moon legal personhood. The event is part of Science Week here in Australia and is supported by Inspiring New South Wales. Panelists include former podcast guests, Donna Lawler and Alice Gorman. To find out more, just search for MBA Forum on the Moon and head to my social media pages for links if that doesn't work. And now back to the episode. My guest today is Dr. Timiebi Aganaba-Jonti. Timiebi is the founder of the ASU Space Governance Lab and is an assistant professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society with a courtesy appointment at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona, Arizona State University in the USA. Timmy Abbey is also a fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation in Canada, where she focuses on environmental governance. In 2017, Timmy Abbey was the recipient of a Space Leaders Award by the International Astronautical Federation. I was super excited to speak to Timmy Abbey, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. So, Enjoy the podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. G'day, Space Junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast, where today I am speaking to the wonderful Dr. Timiebi Aganabajanti. Timiebi, it is so fabulous to be speaking to you. How are you? I'm so good, and you got the name. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I was really worried about the Australian accent messing up some of those vowels <laughs> in there, but um, I mean, what can you do? What can you do with an Aussie accent? You're stuck with it for life, I think, unfortunately. Um, now tell me, where are you? What's going on? Okay, so I am in Tucson, Arizona right now, but I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is about two hours from here. Mm -hmm. um, 
we are at the epicenter basically of the COVID, COVID coronavirus in the US. So it's a little bit crazy. Um, we're trying to socially distance and do all the right stuff, but it's, it's not going too well. The trend is going the wrong way. Um, and it's, you know, America is such an interesting and unique place because at, at these times it feels like the logic is not so obvious. Mm. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to struggle with that, but yeah, apart from, apart from that, things are great. Yeah. Look, I want to dive into all of that, but before we do, I should say that, um, Dr. Timiebi is a space law policy and governance expert. And I'd love to ask you to tell us more about what you do in the space field. Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor at the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University with a courtesy appointment at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU. And, you know, when I tell people I work for SFIS, the School for the Future of Innovation in Society, people are like, whoa, that's a snazzy title. What do you guys actually do? And it's really interesting because this is the second institution that I've worked at that has innovation in the title. Um, the last place that I worked where I did my postdoc was the Center for International Governance Innovation. So basically, all this is to say is that I'm really interested in, you know, how, how, how we use and think about innovation in specific spheres that relate to governance, that relate to technological futures, um, that relate to, you know, our interaction between technology and society. And so I, I have a background in space law. I went to McGill University where I did my PhD. And, and I really looked at Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty. I know that you did a lot of, a lot of work on going through all the different articles. And I focused on Article 1, which is really talking about space should be explored for the benefit and interest of all countries. And... Um, you know, my work is really focused on asking that question, what is space benefit? Who benefits from space? You know, uh, there's a lot of rhetoric that there's a lot of benefits from space exploration. But when you come from, a, say, a developing country perspective or a marginalized group, it can be very difficult to imagine that you yourself can benefit from space. So I've always been really interested in that question of benefit and married that with what is the role of law, policy, and governance to really help articulate and get those benefits spread, um, depending on what people view as their definition of benefit. And I think this, is, this question has clearly become more and more important every day as you see more and more countries are doing like having to justify you know, justify why they explore space and having to always give that me message about space applications, about, you know, we use space for GPS, we use space for ATM and banking in a way that they didn't have to do before. Because when space was purely a Cold War, um, a Cold War activity, it was really about prestige and about being a superpower. But today, that's supposed to not fly anymore because the population really need to understand why should they care about this. So that's really uh, a lot of the work that I do. That is so fascinating. And in Australia at the moment, we're having this conversation about the Artemis Accords and mm. about Australia's obligations and role because we're a signatory to the Moon Agreement. So there's a very real discussion happening about whether the, um, I suppose, the intent and the principles underpinned by the Artemis Accords 
and also that bilateral negotiations approach with each individual country rather than opening it multilaterally, whether that aligns with or has an inherent contradiction with the principles of the Moon Agreement, where it talks about the common heritage of mankind, but also the idea of benefit sharing and the concept that, um, you know, in Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty, we talk about the benefit of all countries. And then in the Moon Agreement, we go further to say that benefits from mining space should be shared. Um, and there's a, a question about Australia's obligations in relation to the Moon Agreement. I mean, do we just pretend that we didn't sign it and just sort of roll ahead with the Artemis Accords? Do we try and find a way of reconciling them? Do we try to create a regime under Article 11? Um, and one of the big questions there is, does the fact that the Moon Agreement has only been signed by a handful of countries, 18, many of which are developing countries or countries that don't have space activities themselves, have give it any less weight than if those 18 countries were the major space-faring nations, for example? What's your take on all of that? I mean, like, I, I hate to throw this at you, and I know that we can go and read your thesis on the subject, but this whole idea of benefits of, of all humankind and for all countries and so on. Is it just rhetoric? Is it possible? What do you think? Yeah, those are great points. You sound like an expert space lawyer yourself. Um, no. I think that, you know, <laughs> scholars, have, scholars have distinguished between um, the concept of space as the province of mankind, which is under Article 1, and space is the common heritage of mankind, which is under the Moon Agreement. So for instance, Joanne Gabrenovich, Fabio Tronchetti have basically distinguished it by saying that um, space as something that should be beneficial for all countries, it's really the exploration and use of space that is the province of all mankind and that is to be shared. And in that context, we're talking about activities. Whereas in the common heritage of mankind, you're talking about materials or resources, right, which have a different kind of status. And that is where we haven't decided or agreed generally on what should happen to those materials. But we've decided that activities should be open, which is what the province of mankind is all about. So I think that to get away from this whole you know, not everyone is signed onto the moon agreement. We can look at, well, what actually already exists under something that everyone has agreed on, upon, which is the activity standpoint. So activities can go on and we, we, we're not arguing about whether everyone should be open to those activities. Where the distinction lies then is how do we figure out how we allocate these resources? And should these resources be allocated the way all the other activities have, have happened, which is basically first come, first served, or whether there should be some a priori kind of um, literal allocation. And I think for me, sometimes I worry and get concerned when we try and push this idea that it's the developing countries that are, you know, that, that are trying to get something for nothing because like you say, Australia is a signatory, France, India, Belgium, you know, these are not developing countries. And the US itself was very instrumental in the development of the Moon Agreement. So it, it wasn't just a bunch of developing countries trying to get something for nothing. It was really thought out that this is the best way that we should think about when exploitation is about to become feasible, how we should think about allocating these resources. 
is the time right now to be talking about this? Yes, it probably is because, you know, that issue of feasibility is around the corner, but at the same time, we're really far from a technological perspective, but we know how long the conversations take, you know, and so that's where we have to start now. And what the US has done with the Artemis Accord is they've kind of, they've kind of put in an accelerator on starting the conversation. And so, you know, as someone who is trying to understand the American perspective, I very much think that it's a starting point. It's definitely a starting point. Mike Gold has said that this could be a way to stimulate a multilateral process because someone had to get something going. We've been talking for 20 years, we've been stale, talking about settlements, talking about all this, and nothing has happened. And all of a sudden, since the 2015 Space Act, you know, and, and, and the US and Luxembourg putting these instruments out there, we've accelerated discussions exponentially. And so what I think the issue is now is that everyone else has to develop their capacity to be able to engage in the conversation. The U.S. has taken a leadership um, position to start the conversation, but that is certainly not where it stops. And so the work of people like me, the work of people like you doing all this outreach is to ensure that people can build their capacity to join the conversation. And I really believe that the U.S. has its ears open, is listening to different perspectives. So do I think that there should be some um, literal allocation? I'm still, I'm still trying to learn about what the best way to do this because because I understand the capitalist mentality that if you put in your effort, if you put in your best work, you should get the rewards from that. You know, how do we balance that with the fact that there is no such thing as ownership? So it's not yours to say that you put in all the work and it should be given to you. This is something that potentially the whole of society has a relationship with. So we have to just continue that dialogue to figure out where the middle point is. It is such a tricky question. And I think a lot of it comes down to, is, are we looking for equality in the, the sense of the province of all mankind? Or are we looking for equity in maybe the sense of the common heritage of mankind? And I think that these two ideas, as you've pointed out, actually are quite conflicting. I think there's something in that capitalist mindset of equal opportunity, for example, that says that you know you've got equal access any country can go to space if they want to is the theory and therefore if you've gone to space well you get the rewards for that um but as we know it's not that easy i mean there are high barriers to entry and there are some countries who will really struggle australia is one of them we might we, we do space things and we do our best but we're never going to have the budget of nasa so thinking about it from an external perspective um it's a, it's a really tricky one and a hard one to get. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from doing a little bit of stalking of you online that you've previously worked for the Nigerian Space Agency. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I started my career in legal affairs and international cooperation at the Nigerian Space Agency. I would say that then I didn't really have a background in space. I fell into it because when you graduate from university in Nigeria, I went to law school in Nigeria, you have to do a year's service for the country. Mm. So I was posted to the Nigerian Space Agency because I wanted to work somewhere innovative, somewhere new, something unique. I was tired of you know, the oil and gas industry and I thought we need to do something that is for the future. 
And it was really interesting because having no background, when I got there, the first question that people would ask me when I was working there was, you know, Nigeria doesn't even have like full electricity supply. You know, there are people who are starving. Why should we be investing in space? And it was really, you know, I had to, I had to then go to the International Space University to really understand from a multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary perspective about why you would be interested in space and, and, and what role space has in benefiting society. And I, think, I really think that you know, today we see that these countries are, are, um, are all really focused on getting internet access and broadband and, and, um, and telephony and all these services, which of course, especially in remote areas, you know, satellite technology can support and I'm just trying to understand their borders and their fisheries stocks and, and all these kind of things that, that space is, is really useful for. But I think the, the big question is that because they haven't understood um, what those applications mean to them historically, they haven't worked at safeguarding the rights that they have to be able to access, you know, how, how, how can you be supported and enabled to be able to enter this field? Because like you say, there are so many barriers. If you don't understand the legal frameworks, if you don't understand all these things, then how are you supposed to find the right partner to be able to help you? How do you offset all these things like the ITAR regulations, etc.? You know, I, I was talking to a colleague in Sudan, for instance, that was saying that it's so difficult to access technology from the U.S. because Sudan has been seen historically as a terror, terror breeding um, country. So for them, for this person, they were saying, you know, we want to access space, but if we don't know how to explain that our, our space activities are, you know, there's nothing inherently bad about them, that they are for civilian and for peaceful purposes, they're not, if they don't know how to offset that, if they don't know how to go to COPUS or that they need to sign on to these different multilateral discussion places, how are they going to get in? You know, it's, it's going to be close to impossible. And, and you need so much capacity. It's taken me 14, 15 years to get to this level of confidence to be able to have these discussions. Now, do these countries have the capacity? And, and it's not just space. It's, it's all the multilateral bodies, right? Mm. Like, um, I've gone to the climate change negotiations. And it's, there's, there's like 50 rooms that you need diplo diplomats and you need people to be in to be part of the conversation, to make one treaty, you know? And so it takes a lot of capacity and it takes a lot of goodwill from the rest of the world that you want to enable people to actually be able to join in the conversation. I've had others from Africa too saying, do these countries really want us to have independent programs or do they just want to continue breeding dependency? Because that's a problem too. You know, yes, you can support, you can give people aid, you can support people and enable people to, for a certain outcome. But if it's just to be dependent on you and, it's, and if it's just to keep them at a certain level, that's not good either. So what is the right balance with, you know, in, in international cooperation? Which I think is, is one manifestation of deeper questions philosophically within our international globalized society at the moment around what it means to truly be inclusive and diverse and have true equity um, and and how as societies 
we actually create those conditions where that's possible. And I think I'd be really interested in your take on this as someone who's currently in the US. I think America in particular is having a kind of moment of reckoning with all of these things. And it's all seeming to come to a head a bit and boiling up around the place in different ways. What's your take on, on what's happening in the US at the moment with these social movements? Yeah, so it's really complex. I mean, I've been in the US two years and it's just, um, it's just so complex to rub your, to get your head around the, the deep inherent nature of these problems. And I think over time, these issues, they bubbled up and bubbled up and bubbled up and, and lip service gets played to addressing them all the time. So, you know, we talk about, you know, people doing unconscious bias training. We hear that over and over and over again, but it doesn't get to the heart of anything, you know, because it's not, it's not, because America is, in some parts of it, is deeply divided. In so many parts of it, is deeply divided. People stay in their silos. They listen to their specific type of media. They go to their specific environments. And there's not that many opportunities for people to really integrate properly. And when they do, you know, dialoguing, for instance, the art of dialoguing is not really taught. Like, how do you how do you have a conversation with someone? How do you have a conversation with someone that has a different viewpoint to you? How do you meet in the middle? I mean, as lawyers, we have to think about being able to argue both sides in every situation because really, you know, a lot of things are a matter of argumentation and about meeting in the middle and, and, and coming to a consensus. And th this is just not something that is, is really prevalent. And so I think what that means is that people don't really discuss issues, things get swept under the rug. People want to, people just want to survive. And the way you survive is just to keep quiet, keep trucking on. But we've seen now with all these, you know, Black Lives Matter issue, all these deaths, people are just tired of it and, and now really ready to make a stand. But it is very complicated to figure out an answer. One thing that struck me when you were talking earlier was about the difference between conversation and debate. And I think America is a country that loves a debate. And they have these huge presidential debates and they stand up there and argue with each other and everything's always, you know, teach the debate, teach the, teach the controversy. But, but actually, as you say, there's no way of going from that de debate stance to then finding consensus and reaching agreement. Um, what do you think about that as someone who, again, is, is someone coming into the US with an external perspective? Yeah, so I think, I think because there are so many underlying tensions, people are scared of conversation. People and people are scared to show who they are. And, and I think that, so when, when you don't get the opportunity to be real, when you don't get the opportunity, opportunity to just be able to sit down with your fellow man as equals and, and say, it doesn't matter if we don't agree, but let's just talk, you can't get anywhere. And so you always have to be adversarial. And I think as people, the difference between when you have international, when you do international relations or, or when you understand diplomacy is there's, there's kind of protocols that help regulate the way these things work and help you navigate um, how you have a conversation with someone and, 
and and you know where you say okay we don't agree but we can still kind of move on i think that just doesn't exist in the us because then the people the average person is not really used to having to think in diplomatic terms i'm reading a book right now actually it's right here on my desk protocol and um it's it's the former um united states chief of protocol and just all the things that go into different kinds of international meetings you know when is 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 phenomenal it's not it's an art it's an art and i think more attention needs to be given to help people just have conversations but i think underlying that is really being able to build an atmosphere of trust and i think that is what people also don't know how to do so for instance my latest project is i'm the architect of the space governance lab concept um and the idea around it was really how do we create this space quote on quote where people can come and people can have this trust atmosphere where they can have this dialogue and especially people from different parts of the world trying to engage with america right and what is the platform to be able to do that um where it's not about america being a bully or america being like bashful or america being prideful but america really being there to listen and say we're a service oriented institution or country and we want to hear what your needs are tell us and we'll see how we can work together that's why i'm in the us because i think this is the perfect place in the whole world to be able to come to help other people if i can just get people to listen and to learn how to create a, to build a trustful environment and have a good conversation And so I really think that I really think that that's the crux of what I'm doing is creating that creating that environment to be able to have dialogue trying to learn what are the principles of dialogue what are the parameters around that what do confidence building measures look like between different actors um and and I feel that that's a way to bridge this whole thing about benefit sharing right we can start from if we can enable justice outcomes whereas where people tell you what benefit means for them and we can have a conversation about well how do we meet in the middle with your version of benefit and my version of benefit you know and and unlock the value of space through meeting everyone's benefits then i think then we would be having discussions such as you you got to give me my part i want you you know here's my part here's your part you only do that when you don't have a consensus at edem you only do that when you don't feel trust you don't feel that people are going to give you a fair share right um it's mm. not about equality we don't there's no such thing as equality in space some the us spends 20 billion on space and another country spends 20,000 you can't be equal there's no there's no equality there right but there there can be equity in that both of those actors are equally important they just have different interests so in a way i see benefit as kind of the idea of highlighting interests and then also measuring impact and when you do those two things you unlock value and then you see what the benefit is to every to anyone so that those are some of my thoughts around i mean i'm still working through them um this, this is all a work in progress i'm currently working on my book and these are some of the ideas that i'm playing with how do you enable the spread of space benefit Timmy Abi this has been incredibly inspiring and uplifting actually um I'm conscious that I've taken a lot of your time so what 
if, if people watching this or listening to this wanted to go and learn more about what you're talking about, about building that confidence, building that benefit sharing um, and, and true cooperation, where can they go? What should they look up? Where can they find more of your stuff? Right. So I think the, the real time place to follow me is really on LinkedIn. I, I'm sharing my ideas there all the time, just things that I'm thinking of. And I'm really trying to engage and build this community and, and build this, this, this society, you know, starting with social media. Um, and, you know, Twitter, I'm on Twitter too, TimmyEbby89, but really LinkedIn is where to follow me. And hopefully by the grace of God, my book will be coming out um, next year um, by Springer. So um, yeah, those are the places to follow me. I'm really, really also working with the Space Generation Advisory Council. And so I'm really happy for youth to reach out to me. That's a really important segment of society that it obviously is the future. And uh, we can't do anything without them. So um, yeah, those are the ways to reach me. Fantastic. So if you're watching this or listening to this and you've been inspired like I have by anything that Timmy Abbey has said, go and look her up on LinkedIn. Uh, by all means, follow her on Twitter and keep an eye out for that book, which will be coming out next year. We might have to have you back then to do an official sort of launch thing with it. That would be amazing. That would be cool. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.